The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. When I got my Keurig Brewer, I loved it so much I decided to name it. The right name had to fit my many sides, from the bold dark roast side to the soft herbal tea side. I landed on Freddy. Yeah, Freddy. It works for me. Who doesn't love their Keurig Brewer? It can brew the perfect cup of coffee, tea, and hot cocoa with just the touch of a button, all without a fuss and so little mess or cleanup. With over 250 varieties to choose from, it's no wonder people actually name their Keurig Brewers. Visit Keurig.com for more info. We're about to inspire you with the stories of real people. Welcome to A Current Life with your host, Jimmy Gould. In the next hour, you will meet one of the most interesting and successful people in the world. Listen as Jimmy gets their real story of success, both the highs and the lows. We hope that you take with you some of the ideas we will share today and embrace your own journey. Now, here's Jimmy. Welcome to another edition of A Current Life. I'm your host, Jimmy Gould, and I'm very honored to introduce to you my special guest this week, Alexandra Cousteau. Alexandra, welcome to A Current Life. Thanks, Jimmy. You know, I appreciate you making the time to join us today. For our listeners, uh, this show goes into over 180 countries, and um, I want to tell you a little bit about Alexandra and the great work she's doing around the world. Um, uh, she's an emerging explorer as defined by National Geographic, a filmmaker, globally recognized advocate on water issues. She continues the work of her renowned grandfather, Jacques Cousteau, and her father, Philippe Cousteau, Sr. Uh, she's dedicated to advocating the importance of conservation and sustainable management of water in order to preserve a healthy planet. Among her many leadership positions that she holds, Alexandra serves as a senior advisor for Oceana on a prestigious Young Global Leaders Council and Global Agenda Council on Oceans of the World Economic Forum. In 2008, she launched the nonprofit Blue Legacy Project to help people understand and value their relationship with water. Uh, this show, Alexandra, is about life's journey and the ups and the downs that we all have to overcome to get where each of us is meant to be. So I guess on that note, first I'd like to thank you for coming on the show. I've looked forward to it now for the past two weeks. And I'd like to kind of start with our, uh, your, your early years and, uh, and let you know that the work you're doing around the world regarding water and educating people on it is just a phenomenal contribution that you're making to humanity. Uh, thanks, Jimmy. Well, you know, I think sometimes that um, part of me was always bound to, to do what I do. You know, I'm, my parents took me on my first expedition when I was four months old. I'd already started swim lessons. Um, we we started our uh, our expedition. Well, they started their expedition with me in tow in Easter Island. And by the time I was four years old, I'd traveled around uh, Latin America and Africa. So I think I sort of 
um, imprinted on the men of the expedition like a baby bird imprints on its mom. And uh, to this day, when I'm on expedition in some strange place in the world, I feel completely at home when I'm with my crew and, and doing this work. Well, I love the piece. I, I saw a piece on CNN on you <clears throat> when you said that I think it was your first time in the water. You're very young, and and you kind of said, bring it on. You know, you really found your home. And, and uh, yeah, many people, we've had some phenomenal people on the show since we started this show called A Current Life. Um, we've had, uh, in all walks of life, people that have made great contributions to our society. And it oftentimes has taken people a long time to figure out what they want to do with their life. And you're the first guest we've had that actually probably at that young at age knew what they wanted to do. So uh, I commend you on that because I was about 30 when I figured out I like to build things. And, you know, you started out growing up, I guess you grew up in California and Los Angeles. And, uh, I was born in L.A., yep. yep. So that's a big change because you also had a, a French heritage with your grandfather and and your father and uh, and you spent a large portion of your youth in France and also traveling around the world. What was it like for you as a little girl doing that? It was well. I always knew that there was something special about my grandfather and about my father and our family. Um, you know, just the way people would look at my grandfather and talk to him when we were walking down the street together, or um, in a shop when he was buying me dresses, or taking me out for hot chocolate. I just saw that there was something magical about him. And, of course, as I grew older, I understood why people were were so enchanted with him. But, you know, I've always known what I wanted to do, but I think you'll agree there's a difference between knowing what you want to do and then figuring out how you'll get it done. (laughs) So it's taken a while for me to figure how to get it done, and um, we're there now. But throughout my 20s, I just traveled a lot. I volunteered a lot of my time with different nonprofits, whether it was um, looking at uh, dolphins in the Bahamas or doing a film about sharks in in, um, the French Polynesia. I mean, carrying water with women in Guatemala. It was sort of my decade of internship, if you will. And... um, and I learned a lot. I saw a lot of different aspects of, of this issue from the humanitarian side of it to the development side to the environmental side. And, and that was a wonderful education. I came out of Georgetown University with a degree in international relations and political science. And I was very influenced by Mohammed Yunus, who I had the fortunate, the great fortune of meeting when I was in college. And he really, he really impressed upon me the importance of not just looking at the environment, but also looking at the the humanity of these issues and and people's needs. So that was um, that was a huge inspiration, and I think gave me a lot of direction at a critical time. Well, I know you know when you travel around the world, and and I've done a fair amount of that myself. Uh, um, you really do. I think, first of all, in this country, I think a lot of us take for granted what we have, and I think it's starting to become obvious where you know, we are global and what happens in one part of the world affects what happens in another part of the world much more than any of us probably realized when we were younger growing up uh, in my generation or your generation. We're a generation apart, and I know that uh, I kind of feel like our entire globe is kind of teetering on on the edge, and, and that we have to find a balance, whether it's, you know, in our 
economic life or in our, you know, in our environment. And, you know, I, as I look and think back on your life, as I read through a lot of things and was so fascinated to want to meet you and interview you, you know, you're, you're somebody who was, first of all, faced a great tragedy when you were young with the loss of your father. I think you were, it was in 1979, a plane crash, and you were three or four years of age. And I lost my mother when I was five. And I know it changed me dramatically. And how do you think that affected you at that time, even though you obviously had a very powerful grandfather and a well-known grandfather? It, it affected me enormously. Uh, actually, one of my first memories is going up to my mom and, and saying, Mommy, I can't remember my papa. I can't remember how he looks. I can't remember the sound of his voice. I can't remember how he smells. And I burst into tears uh, because I was so terrified of forgetting him. And um, I must have been only about four, four and a half years old. And uh, so it, it influenced my life enormously, and it continues to influence my life. I think with every different chapter of my life, I miss him in new and different ways. Um, his guidance, his company, his wisdom, his leadership, his, um, just his, his presence. So... On the other hand, though, he was a wonderful role model. And so often I was lucky enough to be able to read books that he'd written or watch him on film, uh, in his films or um, in interviews. I got to talk to people who had worked with him side by side and knew him and loved him. And so I, I had this guiding light in a lot of ways um, who I felt was always with me and you know, my brother said a funny thing when we were little. He came up to my mom. I remember we were in the kitchen, and um, he said, Mommy, how will I ever get away with doing something bad if Papa's always watching? <laughs> 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 you know, I, I think that in a lot of ways, you know, he was always with us, and, and we felt him um, just guiding us and, and being part of our life, even though he was physically absent. But, you know, that. It was a tragedy. Um, it was a tragedy for my mom. He was the love of her life and vice versa. And so, you know, she's been alone ever since. And, and it's just been, in many ways, my mom, my brother, and I, the three of us. And um, so we, we miss him a lot. But at the same time, he was a wonderful example and, and I think influenced me even more than my my grandfather. Well, you know, I I do agree with you. It never... First of all, it never leaves you. And, and, and no, I know for me, uh, when my mother passed away on Christmas Eve, it was something that affects me every time Christmas comes around and, and it stays with you, and I think it stays with me. I have children, and I know I've tried to live from those experiences that what little I even knew about it, because like you, I didn't remember much of that. And um, I think the fact that you've, uh, done and committed yourself to such worthwhile ventures like you're doing is really a testament to what was passed on to you, regardless of what age you were. Um, it really says a lot about that influence, because uh, I don't think we travel very far from those influencers like that. Uh, it's nothing that ever leaves you, whether they're there physically or not. So at least that's how I choose to have it, and I've had a stepmother since then, also perish, and my father, and other things like that. So, I, I like talking to people who have 
gone through things like that because it I think it, it allows them to kind of go through the looking glass a little bit and and push the edge of the envelope and and, and explore those things that aren't as maybe as noticeable or as readily available to certain people because they haven't experienced it. Uh, so I'm curious, you, you know, um, you know, you went on your first scuba dive when, um, well, you went on your first expedition with your father when you were four months old and you learned to scuba dive with your grandfather at seven. What was that magical moment, I guess, when you were seven or whenever that it really just hits you? What What was that great memory that just pops out at you? Well, my grandfather took me scuba diving for the first time when I was seven, as you said, and it was in the south of France, off the coast of uh, Nice, and we went out in a, in a boat, just a regular boat, and he had fashioned um, a little mask and a little tank on red rubber suspenders and little fins, and um, it, it was... Uh, it was my first time, and he suited me up. And I shuffled up to the side of the boat and looked down into the you know, dark, deep water. And I thought, oh, Lord, is this thing that he gave me to put in my mouth really going to work? <laughs> is it gonna, is it, am I going to drown? <laughs> There's something special I need to know that he's not telling me. I, I, was, I was a little bit nervous. And um, and you know, just at the moment, as I, when I was getting ready to take the regulator out of my mouth and, and turn to him and protest, uh, he gave me a wink and pushed me in. And uh, I took a first very tentative breath, and it worked. And and I submerged my my head completely and tried it again. It worked again. And so with that, I sort of put my head down and started swimming down and um, found myself at about 20 feet surrounded by this school of small silverfish. I don't remember what kind they were, but they just started swimming around me. And the sunlight was glinting off their little silver bodies, and they were swimming in perfect unison they would make a sharp right at the same time. They would swim up at the same time. They were just, it was like a ballet. And I was astonished at how extraordinary uh, this this moment was. And I think that was so the you beginning felt of really falling. You, you felt very comfortable at that point. Yes, I'd been swimming, you know, for since I was three months old. So being in the water was very comfortable for me. But diving, I think I took to it naturally because of that. But I was so distracted by how amazing everything was. Um, I, I, I wasn't nervous at all. But, you know, my, my father um, went diving with my grandfather when he was just four years old. And it was, uh, it was it's a funny story because my grandfather recounted that my father was so excited by everything that he saw, whether it was a coral reef or a fish or seaweed or whatever it was, that he kept opening his mouth to ex- exclaim um, to my grandfather about how extraordinary it was. And my grandfather had to keep putting the regulator back in his mouth so that he wouldn't drown. And when they got back on the boat, he admonished my father, saying, you know, Philippe, 
you can't talk when we're underwater because it's a silent world. And <laughs> that went on to be the name, of course, of his book and his Oscar-winning film. Right. Well, you know, um, first of all, if you're going to learn how to how to dive and how to be in the water, I mean, learning from Jacques Cousteau and, uh, is, is pretty amazing. I mean, you know, our listeners, I'm sure most of them are familiar, but you know, your grandfather was a French naval officer, an explorer, an ecologist, a filmmaker, an innovator, a scientist, a photographer, an author, researcher who studied the sea and all forms of life and water. He co-developed the Aqualung, pioneered marine conservation, and was a member of the Académie Française. He was also known as Le Commandant Cousteau or Captain Cousteau. I grew up, I don't think there was a week that I didn't watch him on TV or didn't follow something. I was fascinated by his adventures. Uh, I remember a great quote. I think it was attributed to him. Uh, it said, the sea, the great unifier, is man's only hope. Now as never before, the old phrase has literal meaning, we're, we are all in the same boat. Mm. And just fascinating, you know, that, that you had that inspiration. I know when we interviewed Marlo Thomas and her growing up with the people around her, like Danny Thomas and Frank Sinatra and and then building St. Jude's Hospital, it was fascinating for me to go back through those years with her because I had known Jerry Lewis when I was young. And, you know, I guess growing up like that, you, certain things happen. Is there a particular moment in time being exposed to so many people who knew your grandfather uh, that, you know, it really had an effect on you, a wow moment in your own life, something that stands out as you look back on your life that has led you to where you are today? Oh, I think it was a combination of, of so many moments. You know, my um, my first dive was one of them, um, conversations that I had with my grandfather as I was growing up and when I was in university, uh, different, you know, experiences in nature that I had, whether it was uh, free diving with humpback whales in Maui or swimming with dolphins, wild dolphins in the Bahamas or... Um, you know, meeting people, simple people from different developing nations who were an inspiration to me and who impressed me with their courage and their determination and their perseverance. I think there's, you know, I, I am made up of so many different moments and I I really couldn't, couldn't name... One, mo- one moment. Yeah. Now, your mother, Jan Cousteau, is a Jan Cousteau, is also yeah. a conservationist, an impressive one at that. And I read somewhere that she used to be a fashion model and had worked as a wildlife rehabilitator. In fact, with your mother, you and your younger brother, Philippe Pierre, raised beavers, walruses, dolphins, and even a deer that would not have survived on their own. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, my mom is, is an extraordinary person. She was born in L.A. and um, moved to New York to be a model in the 60s and modeled very successfully for for seven or eight years there. And um, she was um, good friends with uh, Henry Fonda and his wife, Shirley. Sure. And so one night they went to a Peter, Paul, and Mary um, after party at... Um, at a hotel in New York, and it was in this in St. Regis ballroom. And they're there having cocktails and chatting, and a friend of theirs was hosting my father 
while he was in New York giving some speeches, and it was right as they were negotiating with ABC to launch the, the premiere of The Underwater World of Jacques Cousteau. And so um, my mom knew that uh, their friend Julian was going to be coming to the after party with some guy named Phil Costu, but she didn't know who that was. So, um, But when she, she saw Julian walk in with my father, um, sort of like the world stopped here was this, this tall, handsome Frenchman with bright blue eyes and very graceful. And as he moved across the dance floor, sort of, you know, she was like, wow. Was <laughs> it love at first said, sight? Look at that. <laughs> Who just right. walked in? And uh, yeah, yeah, less than a year later, they were married. Wow. Wow. So, you know, it was it, for her, she, she left modeling behind and moved to Paris, didn't speak the language. The first year that they were married, my father was still on expedition in the Red Sea, and he wasn't home very often, so she would ride her bicycle through the streets of Paris to the Alliance Française to take her French lessons and um, tried very hard to look French and dress like a French woman and, and really integrate herself into this new country that she was living in. And after about a year, my father said, you know, I didn't marry you to leave you behind. I'm, you're coming with me. And so she spent the next 13 years on expedition and participated in the filming of 22 documentaries. And it was really, she was the only woman on board. And I think, um, yeah, I envy her those years on expedition because it was a time that is unique in our time. And, and you know, the the men of those expeditions were really one of a kind as well. And, you know, they were the kind of guys who not only excelled at what they did, but they could, you know, do anything. They could build a house. They could fix a generator. They could, you know, um, make food. They could they could fix a transistor radio. Anything that needed to be done, they they could do it. And they were practical jokers as well. You know, oftentimes uh, my mom would stay behind when they would go out for the day to film. And um, there's this one funny story that they talk about where she there was only one bathroom for everybody. And so she would wait till the, all the men left for the day, and then she would go and shower and, and, and use the bathroom. And um, sometimes she would walk in, and there was a toilet stall in, in the bathroom. And um, she would see boots in the toilet stall. <laughs> And so she would say, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, and close the door and leave. And she would be waiting and waiting, and 20 or 30 minutes later, she'd open the door, and the boots were still there, sorry, sorry, and she'd leave. Finally, she took a broomstick, <laughs> poked at the boots, and they fell over. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't have to wait anymore. She didn't have to wait anymore. But they were always playing pranks on her, good-natured pranks, or teaching her words to say to my father when he would get back that would make him red in the face and um, blush furiously and make her promise never to say that again. Well, we're, we're, were, we're going to uh, come back and talk a lot about water and about your thoughts and, and how people can learn from what you've learned and what you're teaching. Um, it's time for us to take a short break. This is Jimmy Gould with my special guest, Alexandra Cousteau.
Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. The stove, the refrigerator, all the pots and pans, the sink. Sure, take the kitchen sink, too. Yeah, pretty much everything in the kitchen I could live without if I had to. Except, of course, my Keurig Brewer. Who doesn't love their Keurig Brewer? It can brew the perfect cup of coffee, tea, and hot cocoa with just the touch of a button. All without a fuss and so little mess or cleanup. With over 250 varieties to choose from, it's no wonder your Keurig Brewer is the favorite thing in your kitchen. Visit Keurig.com for more info. When I got my Keurig Brewer, I loved it so much I decided to name it. The right name had to fit my many sides, from the bold dark roast side to the soft herbal tea side. I landed on Freddy. Yeah, Freddy. It works for me. Who doesn't love their Keurig Brewer? It can brew the perfect cup of coffee, tea, and hot cocoa with just the touch of a button. All without a fuss and so little mess or cleanup. With over 250 varieties to choose from, it's no wonder people actually name their Keurig Brewers. Visit Keurig.com for more info. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to A Current Life with Jimmy Gould. If you have a question or comment for Jimmy or his guest today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd like to send an email, the address is acurrentlife at yahoo.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to A Current Life. This is your host, Jimmy Gould, and today I have a very special guest here with me, Alexandra Cousteau. Alexandra, before we start talking about Blue Legacy and about your adventures around the world regarding our planet and water and the conservation of and the understanding of how important it is, um, what were you like as a, in a, in, if you could describe uh, kind of your fairly normal college experience and, and eventually going out and meeting your husband and having your first child and how some of the things as a younger person being exposed to so much help shape also having what a lot of our guests have had to talk about is how to balance their everyday life with their passion. Oh, well, that's still a work in progress. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> um, Me too. You know, I, I went to uh, Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., absolutely loved it. Um, and uh, I didn't study marine biology. Most people think I probably studied marine biology, but I didn't. I, um, I, I studied political science, and it was actually a really good choice for me because studying political science, I think, you know, you, you, it, it trains you to analyze situations and events. It, sort of like if country A does this, then country B will respond in this way, and you'll have consequence C. And so, you know, you're trained to to look at these things and analyze them and anticipate. And that's actually been a wonderful training for me. It really allows me to look at what's happening in the environment, look at what's happening in the world, and, and understand you know, the, the, the course of events and where we may end up and, and advocate more effectively, I think. 
So Georgetown was a wonderful experience. As I mentioned, I met um, Dr. Mohamed Yunus, who won the Nobel Peace Prize a few years ago for inventing microcredit. Huge influence on me. I uh, had wonderful professors. I, I got published. I just had the opportunity to do a lot of really extraordinary things. And when I left Georgetown, I moved to Europe for a while, and I've lived in, in Washington, D.C. I was in my early 20s, I was on the board of directors of an oceanographic institute in Florida working on aquaculture and dolphin research and things like that. I hosted documentaries and did all these things in, the 20, in my 20s. I was really fortunate. And, and then um, from 2005 to 2007, I was living in Central America. And I was based out of Costa Rica. I did a lot of work in Panama, um, some other work in, in the other countries in Central America. So I traveled quite extensively throughout the region, and I was working on helping find sustainable alternative livelihoods for poor fishing communities and whose um, coastal resources had been um, decimated by industrial fishing, fishing um, practices. I worked on marine protected areas and um, legislation and enforcement. I worked on you know, advocating for the passage of anti-shark feeding legislation and Marine Mammal Protection Acts in, in Panama. It was, it was a really great two years. And when I got back from, from there to Washington, D.C., I started thinking about the disconnects between what's happening in our oceans and what's happening in our communities and how we forget that the oceans upon which life everywhere in the world, and in, on land especially, depends on healthy and vibrant oceans, and we forget that. We forget that the oceans start in the streams and rivers and lakes of our own communities and our own backyards. And I was trying to figure out how I could help people to understand this idea and to feel empowered to be part of the solution and not think about the ocean as something that's happening far away and that's irrelevant to our daily life, but to understand that we live on a water planet, that our water is connected through systems um, to our environment and to our lives, to our health, to our well-being, to our future, to our economic prosperity, to all of this. It's just critical for us. And, uh, and looking around, I saw that you know, we fragment these systems, the watersheds where water's, water falls in the form of rain um, in a forest on a ridge and it moves across the land down to the ocean. That's a watershed. And it, it, it's gotten so fragmented. And even with our massive rivers here in the United States, the Colorado River uh, no longer reaches the sea. And so many people think that it just happens between the walls of the Grand Canyon, but it actually dies a very sad and lonely death in the Colorado River Delta and doesn't reach the sea anymore. Um, and then we have other rivers like the Mississippi River, which is an extraordinary system. I mean, the system, the watershed of the Mississippi River stretches from Montana to Pennsylvania all the way down to Louisiana. It drains 40% of this country. And um, it ends in a dead zone where nothing can live a huge part of the year. So we're, we're disconnecting ourselves from our water. We're disconnecting the system itself from the different components that is critical to its well-being. And we're experiencing the consequences through um, declining water quality. So our water in so many places is not good enough for us to swim in, drink from, or eat the fish from. Why is it so hard for people to accept that 
I mean, you, you, you know, from a political standpoint, as well as just a mind standpoint, people just don't get it. I mean, uh, I mean, you know, just, just saving on your water, just, uh, just, just the whole thing you just outlined, everything affects everything else. And we really are a planet of, of water. And, and the land is really just little islands that are off of that water. And, you know, I, I, I don't understand why more people don't, haven't figured this out, especially those that are having children, like you just had your, your child, and, and how we have to preserve the planet, and especially its most critical resource, which is water. You're absolutely right, and I've thought a lot about that, and I, I think there's, there's a couple things that have happened. You know, what, what we need to understand as, as a society and as a collection of communities is that we need to have water that is of good enough quality so we can swim, drink, and fish in it, and that there is sufficient quantity um, so that we have what we need, when we need it, where we need it. And those two things are in danger, and they're in danger because we have fragmented our watersheds. And I think we've done that um, for a couple reasons. Uh, one is that we have failed to shape a conversation about water. You know, we talk about the global water crisis, and we don't really know what that means. You know, is it digging wells in Africa? Is it um, plastic floating around the Pacific? Is it water bottles and banning them? Is it um, drying up of aquifers? Is it pollution in our rivers? What is the global water crisis? We have not defined it, and we failed to shape the conversation about it. And I think the other problem is that the miracle of modern technology, the infrastructure that we've been able to build, has made it so that water is free and readily available, and it's good enough to drink when it comes out of our tap. We are blessed, more blessed than we realize to have this, but I think we've taken it for granted. We figure that you know, the infrastructure will take care of it. When we turn on our tap, we'll have the water we need, and you know, maybe there'll be a drought one summer, but it'll go back to being normal. And I think what we're starting to realize is that it's not going back to normal. But our our politicians don't have, um, I think, the the conviction to make long-term investments in the quality and quantity of our water by making decisions that may be unpopular in the short term. And so I think that's another one of the problems that we're facing. And we don't know enough about what's happening in our own communities to demand it. So in, in, in 2008, you founded your nonprofit organization, Blue Legacy, and you set off on a 138-day water tour around North America. Um, can you tell us really the, uh, what you've been telling us is really is this what Blue Legacy is about, to help educate and make people aware of how these systems come together and how they define us? Absolutely. You know, I come from a, a filmmaking family, but um, I, I had never really figured out how I wanted to help tell the story because, um, you know, television is very different from when my grandfather was making his films, and there were three channels. Now we have hundreds of channels, and and I didn't really want to get into the rat race of making TV shows. But I did think that there were important uh, ways to communicate about these issues and and help shape a conversation. I wanted people to talk about these ideas around the dinner table with their friends. I wanted to post 
them to post these stories on their Facebook pages and and um, and email them. And so uh, in 2009, we did our inaugural expedition, which is a global expedition of 100 days around the world. And I wanted it to be uh, an expedition where people could tune in, if you will, online every day and see where we were, what we were doing, who we were talking to, or there could be a real interactivity with our audience. I wanted grandparents to... Um, click on our website and, and look at our latest film with their grandchildren or people to talk about it in the evenings. And and um, and it was a wonderful experience. We produced 40 short films and daily blogs and photo galleries. And we had uh, 100 million media impressions a month in, in that first expedition and got wonderful feedback. And people were watching and talking. And I, I felt really good about it when we got back to the States. And after after talking with with uh, my colleagues and 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 the public and my fans when we were back i heard a lot of um wow alexander that was an amazing expedition and obviously there's a global water crisis but it's a good thing we don't have those problems here in america <laughs> thought, oh my goodness <laughs> i guess my next expedition is around north america and so yeah. next year uh, we uh, we got actually John McCain's former Straight Talk Express, uh-huh. and we used that bus, which had also been used by Paul McCartney and and some other oh. really extraordinary people, and we made it into a biodiesel workstation and editing suite, and we spent a uh, hundred and forty days traveling across Canada, the U.S., and Mexico, doing the same thing, making films, short films, posting them on, online, nationalgeographic.com, Mother Nature Network. We gave, My mission is, is storytelling, but I give it away for free. So all of these stories were on multiple media platforms online, and, um, and people were talking about them in their news articles. They were talking about them on their personal blogs. They, it, was, it was a wonderful Example, I learned so much, not only about how to tell these stories and get them out there in a way that people can talk about them and understand what's happening in a, in a bite-sized piece, but I learned a lot about what's happening in North America. And, Jimmy, we've got problems. <laughs> we've got problems that we need to work together to solve. Well, I was going to ask what your most disturbing finding was, but I think one of your most disturbing findings had to be that, the, that America has as many water issues like countries like India or Botswana, and that the people in America or USA take a lot for granted. and They would need to be probably even more educated because they don't think they do, and they don't understand how they connect. Would that be a fair assessment? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we've, we've, we're draining our aquifers. We're polluting our coastlines. We're um, building dams in the wrong places. And, you know, one of the things that I always say is that it's not an either-or. We have this really ridiculous um, a, a conversation going in America right now where, you know, it's, it's progress versus environmentalism. And if you want progress, then you have to destroy the environment. And, and that's not true at all. You know, we, this country, the greatness of this country, um, from the trees and the coast, and the wildlife and the water, down to the kinds of soil we have here, is is a country that whose wealth and power and greatness was built on nat- natural resources, 
And if we want to continue having this prosperity that we've enjoyed, that we've developed, I think we need to have a thought for maintaining the viability of those natural resources that make us so prosperous. And we can develop. I mean, it's okay to put in a dam. It's okay to do some of these things. But let's do it in the right place, in the right way, so that these resources that I consider to be intergenerational assets can continue to be enjoyed not only by you and me but also by our children and that we can continue to grow our economy and and create jobs without destroying what we have. And I think that that's something that we need to think about more. Well, uh, first of all, I thank you for your work and and your education to people and, more importantly, my children do. And I do want to point out before we take a break that in 2008, Alexandra was honored as National Geographic Emerging Explorer, an elite group of 11 visionary young trailblazers from around the world, a very special group of individuals that have really pushed the boundaries and lived for, me- for meaning. And you've also been honored as an Earth Trustee by the United Nations and named a principal voice by CNN International and many more honors and well-deserved. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to come back. We always do on our last segment, we talk about the meaning of life and legacy. And in your case, it's uh, you're living it every day. So stay with us. We're with Alexander Cousteau. This is Jimmy Gould. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Do you have career aspirations that seem beyond what you think you can afford? At Ohio Midwestern College, you can transform your hard work into a bachelor's degree in business administration, education, or Christian ministries. Call 1-888-887-4300 or check out www.omw.edu to learn how you can afford a fully accredited degree today. Ohio Midwestern College. Affordable. Professional. Genuine. Our open enrollment starts today. Call us now at 1-888-887-4300 or on the web at www.omw.edu. That's 1-888-887-4300 or on the web at www.omw.edu. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to A Current Life with Jimmy Gould. If you have a question or comment for Jimmy or his guest today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd like to send an email, the address is acurrentlife at yahoo.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to A Current Life. This is Jimmy Gould, your host. I'm here with Alexandra Cousteau. 
Alexandra, I know that you and your husband, Fritz, just had your first child, Clementine. I'm curious how becoming a mother uh, and the miracle of life has affected your outlook. It's, well, it's been extraordinary. You know, my, my whole life I was so busy traveling and exploring and um, excited about everything and um, had these big ideas and big plans. And while that hasn't changed, um, having having little Clementine, I guess, last July, so she's seven months old now, has been a transformative experience. And people always say when you have a kid, it changes you. And I, I just never could have imagined it, it would be like this. You know, she's, she's extraordinary. And now I, I think about the next hundred years in terms of her lifetime. And, you know, when we say we'll, you know, reach nine billion people in the world by this year or, or, you know, ocean acidification could destroy the corals by this year, I think, oh my gosh, she'll be 45 years old or, oh my gosh, she'll be 60 or she'll just have, you know, she'll have her own kids by then and they'll never get to see that. You know, it's, 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 it's heartbreaking sometimes to put it in, in that context. And, my grandfather, when I look back at what the world was like when, when he was my age, it was such a different place. In the Mediterranean, I just read an article that, that classified it as practically a dead zone. And yet when he was my age, so 35, it was filled with fish. And, and you know, it was, it was so diverse. And, and, and there were huge grouper. You know, mega, multi-hundred-pound grouper, uh, right along the coasts, and and there was so much life there, and and now it's almost a dead zone. And so, in such a short period of time, we've devastated landscapes, we've devastated the oceans, we've devastated so much, and um, and with that goes, you know, an, an impoverishment and and the opportunity cost of not having vibrant fisheries, not having the kind of tourism that we could have, not having, you know, all these things that we could have. And, it, and it's, it's been in decline since my grandfather started his explorations. And so, you know, you asked earlier about things that, that motivate me. And I think when I go back to my childhood water places and I see that they're gone, that um, tide pools in Maui that I spent a whole summer exploring mm-hmm. every day for eight hours a day with my bucket and my net and I'd catch little things and put them in my bucket and let them go and catch some more and, and explored and understood and discovered things that year. I went back and they were gone. It was it was a dead zone. They were covered in slimy algae from nutrient pollution and nothing was living in them. And I've seen a lot of my childhood places disappear in this way. So you know, I wonder what places will Clementine have and and um, and then what will she have to share with her children? And we all have water places, Jimmy. I'm sure you have water places from your childhood that mean something to you. And, you know, I hear a lot of people come up to me after my speeches or they, you know, Facebook me or whatever, and they say, you know, this pond that was in my community where I used to catch frogs and throw them at the girls I had crushes on when I was eight um, is gone now, and I grieve for it because I wanted to take my child there. Um, We have those places everywhere, places that um, either are gone and gone for good or places that are still we we could still save if if we if we tried or places we can restore, and those places are in every community. And I guess what gives me hope um, that we can turn this around is that if people take an interest in understanding where their water comes from, 
they can they can get engaged in the water in their backyard, in their water in their community, and work together to protect it. And that's that's where I have hope that we can turn things around. You know, while you were talking, I was thinking of two things. First of all, it's incredible your passion for this, even before your daughter was born. Uh, the fact now that Clementine is is now um, seven seven months old, and you know, you look out now another hundred years. I remember growing up because I love to fish, and I just love it. It's uh, it takes you away from the world, and it lets you get to a whole different place. And you know, you're on your own. It's kind of why I like climbing Kilimanjaro as you did last year. And um, it doesn't seem it may just be that I'm just not a great fisherman that that I catch the same kind of fish that I used to catch when I was a little kid with, when I would go fishing. Mm-hmm. They don't. They just don't look as big. They don't look as healthy. They don't. It doesn't. Uh, maybe it's my imagination, but I'm curious. Is it my imagination? Because when I climbed Kilimanjaro, I didn't see any any snow on the mountain until seventeen thousand five hundred feet. Yeah, and, I didn't see um, any either. <laughs> so it's not in our. I mean, I, look. I, I'm sure a lot of it's overpopulation. In fact, your grandfather was a proponent, I believe, of con- some control over population growth. Because at some point in time. We're just, we just can't hold 9 billion people. I mean, uh, we got to do something, and I don't know what the answers are, but you do believe that if we all become more aware, that's a great step to trying to do something to turn the problem around, right? I do. I think, you know, overpopulation, our greatest hope um, to solve that is to lift people out of poverty, and especially women, educating women, empowering women. I think that you know, my grandfather said the same thing, you know, and he was a crusty old Frenchman. <laughs> right. So I think, you know, empowering and educating women, especially in the developing world, will will help bring our population down. I think, you know, in terms of pollution and all the rest of it, you know, there's over 80,000 chemicals that haven't been tested that are flowing through our environment. We keep producing more and more and more and putting it out there and, um, a lot of them are endocrine disruptors. A lot of them, you know, they're, they're causing fish. You know, I'm from Washington, D.C., and the, the male bass have ovaries in their testes in the Potomac River. Um, to think that all of these chemicals that we're putting into our environment aren't having an impact on us, I think, is foolish. It's what fantasy. About, what about the offshore drilling and what happened in the Gulf and, and where we should go from here? based upon everything that's going on overseas in the Middle East and, and, and the fact that we just allowed uh, settle with BP at least part of the thing, are you, were you in favor of that? Are you in favor of that? What are some of your thoughts on that? You know, I think because we are growing in population, we have very real energy needs that we have to satisfy. We have um, agricultural needs that we need to satisfy. We need to feed people. We need to clothe people. We need to prioritize. Um, we're going to have to make some difficult decisions and we're going to have to make compromises on both sides, on industry and, and on innovation. But, um, but what shocks me about drilling offshore is that you know, for all the billions and billions of dollars in profits and everything, that, that all the wealth that is generated from that, um, we haven't really invested significant amounts in prevention um, of the kind of oil spill that happened if something goes wrong. And we saw that play out in horrifying clarity. And 
on the news after, after the oil spill began, we didn't have a way to solve it. And it's shocking to me that booms, this simple technology that has not changed or evolved in decades, was what was going to clean it up. And I went out there and I sailed around and I saw the fishing fleets pulling these booms behind them. And here were these you know, fabric booms slapping up and down on the water and oil was soaking into it, but it was also passing underneath it, going over it. Waves were going into the area that they were, you know, pulling the booms behind them and sloshing back out again. And it just, I find it shocking that we are so greedy in our determination to go in and drill, but um, we don't have any solutions for it if something goes wrong. And I know they're talking about finding those solutions, but I don't believe that enough investment and innovation and imagination is going into it to really keep our communities safe because those communities were devastated in ways that are incomprehensible. And, um, and I, I just think it's, I think it's unacceptable. Do you, do you have, you mentioned Maui before, do you have a, a, the most beautiful, incredible place that you've ever visited, one you would call the most beautiful? I'm sure all of them are special in their own way, but one that stands out and also one that maybe in this country or wherever where you really are concerned about what's happening? Um, I would have to say that one of the most beautiful places in the world that I've been is the Okavango Delta in Botswana. It's absolutely pristine. It's it's the kind of place I want to take my daughter, and you know I take her everywhere with me. Um, she's been traveling since she was two and a half months old. She's been to Latin America, Europe, the Middle East. She just comes with me, and my husband, bless his heart, he usually comes too. Um, I'm taking her on expedition in the Baltic Sea this summer with Oceana. It's um, it's exciting, and I think the places that I want to take her. Um, are places like the Okavango. I, it's the, one of the last remnants of purity in this crazy world that we live in. And uh, there's, you know, we, you, you fly in on these little um, bush planes and, and uh, the, the lodge will pick you up and drive you a very short distance, maybe just a couple miles to the lodge. But it takes an hour <laughs> because there's so many animals on the road and you could literally drink water out of out of the streams and um while you watch hippos and and elephants it's just and it, it's because um the water flows from the mountains of Angola and um flows down into the desert flows under the desert for a thousand miles or so and then bubbles up in the Okavango Delta so it's been wow. purified and filtered and there's Lots of plants that continue that filtration, so it's it's an extraordinary place. Let me, let me ask you because we have about a minute left. I've really enjoyed this, and I hope you'll come back on. Uh, uh, as you look back on your journey in just a few minutes, a few minutes, a few seconds, I'd like to ask you: What do you feel the meaning of life is? To leave it, to leave the the world a better place than when you found it. I know that's great. what I'm trying to do. Well, it's a great answer. Uh, in fact, a lot of people can't answer when I ask it. I want to say our time's up. Well, I want to thank Alexandra Cousteau for sharing her journey with us. We're very appreciative that you were able to join us today and thank our many listeners. I want to thank the entire Cousteau family for all of their work as conservationists and water advocates. I'd like to thank our listeners again for tuning into A Current Life. And until next time, I wish each and every one of you a journey filled with hope 
inspiration, and success. And Alexandra, uh, we're available to help in any way we can. We are so proud of all the work you've done, and we encourage you to keep doing it for all of, all of us, and particularly for our children. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Timmy. Take care. again for joining us for A Current Life on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please tune in to another great program with your host, Jimmy Gould, next Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time. We'll see you next week. The stove, the refrigerator, all the pots and pans, the sink. Sure, take the kitchen sink, too. Yeah, pretty much everything in the kitchen I could live without if I had to. Except, of course, my Keurig Brewer. Who doesn't love their Keurig Brewer? It can brew the perfect cup of coffee, tea, and hot cocoa with just the touch of a button. All without a fuss and so little mess or cleanup. With over 250 varieties to choose from, it's no wonder your Keurig Brewer is the favorite thing in your kitchen. Visit Keurig.com for more info.